Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, all of the surveys reveal most Americans have few friends of another race, even though most agree building friendships across racial lines can be greatly beneficial and enriching. Still, most people rarely strike up meaningful relationships outside of their racial group. At a time when racial relations in the country remain fraught, a new book suggests the thorny conversation about race and racism may be best achieved in one-on-one cross-racial relationships. In this special one-hour show, we examine cross-racial friendships, drawing from the real-life friendships, data, and surveys in the new book, Some of My Friends Are, The Daunting Challenges and Untapped Benefits of Cross-Racial Friendships by Dr. Deborah Plummer. Later in the show, we examine how our colleagues and acquaintances are working to nurture cross-racial friendships in their communities. But first, joining me in the studio, Dr. Deborah Plummer, Vice Chancellor of Diversity at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and the author of Some of My Friends Are, The Daunting Challenges and Untapped Benefits of Cross-Racial Friendships. Welcome, Dr. Plummer. Thank you. And also with me, Perpetua Charles, Associate Publicist at Beacon Press. She has also been in a long-term cross-racial friendship with Clara Durrance, a sales assistant at Infinex Investments, who joins us now from her home in Bowling Green, Florida. Hello to you both. So, Perpetua, hello. Hello, Kelly. (laughs) And Clara, hello. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you both. I'm starting off with you, Dr. Plummer, (laughs) because uh, the book is personal, and is underscored by a lot of great uh, survey and data material. And of course, all of your experiences as focus groups, material that you've worked on for some 20 years, poured into this book. It's very well done. But really, the motivation for it began quite personally with you, with a conversation with your friend. Tell me about it. Yes. My friend is named Yvonne. Um, And we are walkers. We walk and solve the world's problems. And on one particular walk, I I think we were just talking about white people. And um, she's African-American, similar background. And she looked at me and said, why do you have so many white friends? And I was curious about that question because I looked at her and said, well, don't you? And she said, not as many as you have. And not in the same way that you have them. So... I got very curious about that, and as an academic, I thought, let me see who's the outlier here. I really thought it was her, you know, that most of us did have friends that crossed racial lines, but it didn't take me long into doing some reading and doing some focus groups and surveys to know that, you know, I was the outlier. Hmm. Was that a surprise to you? It was, but not so much, you know... I think the intensity and the depth and how many didn't have friends that cross racial lines, that was a surprise. 
Now, you also had a long-term friendship, which this book and the work that you were doing on this book caused you to re-examine. So tell us a little bit about that as well. I thought for this book what I would do is go back to my longest-term white friend who happened to be um, someone I met in my freshman year of high school. So we have been friends now for over 50 years. And in examining that, I thought, we have really never talked about race. It's been a kind of a taboo topic. I knew that she was had some strong beliefs around political beliefs, religious beliefs, but pretty much we were simpatico on a lot of other things. But I said to her, I think it's time for us to talk about race. It was actually a in a focus group when one um, participant said that she was a safe black friend for a lot of her friends. She said, I don't think this is going to solve racial problems because I'm a safe friend, meaning I get along. And I thought, gee, I'm a safe friend for a lot of my white friends, too. So I said, we're going to have to talk about race. We ended up having um, formal interviews. And during those interviews, it became quite apparent to me (laughs) that we were very, very different people. And so when I was writing the book, I wasn't sure if our friendship was going to remain. And she was when she read the draft, she said to me, I wasn't quite sure if we were going to make it. Well, I heard you speak at the Harvard Bookstore, and the thing that was going through my mind as you were speaking was, how do you define friendship? Um, And you do define it on page 182 of your book, um, defining, defining friends as bubble friends, acquaintances, fantasy friends, calendar friends, and then the deepest friendship, the one, the way that you describe Heart friends is how I would describe friendship. Anybody else, I would not describe that way. But you said to me then, and I want you now to uh, talk about why there is a spectrum of how people define for themselves what a friendship is. So you began this whole journey by having people say, well, this is this is my friend and this is how I defined it. So talk to us about Bubble friends. Will do. And I must say that your response to that question about the friendship, I have quoted now when I I just quoted it in Cleveland and I have quoted it in other places where I've gone, where I say Callie Crossley put it best when she said, they may think that they're my friends, but we're not friends. I make it clear that we're not friends. We may be friendly, Mm -hmm. but we're not friends. And I think that that's a good distinction as well. What I found is that when most people, particularly white people, did say that they had a friend who was black or um, Hispanic or Asian, the friendship was not of the level of depth or intimacy that we would think about. Like when you were saying, your friends are of the heart. And when we were doing the research, we decided the best way to assess that would be to have people not to be able to say, here's a definition of friendship, which ones do you have, but to tell us, you know, what they do. So could do they socialize at their home? Have they been present for an argument? Would they borrow money? Would they call them at 3 a.m. if they had an emotional problem? And then I began to categorize it. And what I did find was like bubble friends are the ones that they hardly know each other on any kind of depth or intimacy, but they um, hold a kind of togetherness in a racial utopia, I call it, where they believe that, you know, we're post-racial, there's no problems with race, and they say, 
you know, we all put on our pants the same way. We're both human beings. And they ignore a lot of the racial dynamics that happen in the United States, particularly around this, in order to say that we're friends. And because we're friends, we don't have any racial problems. There are those that those are particularly we see a lot of those in the political sphere right now. Then there's the fantasy friends. And a lot of folks said, well, I do have someone who is a friend, but they, when you ask them a little bit about where, what's their name, <laughs> you know, where do they live, they don't have many details at all. Like I always say, this is the one that perhaps you were on a United Way group with, <laughs> or they're the Pomeranian's dog's mom, or you were, um, you know, someone that sits three pews behind you in church, but you don't know anything else about them, but you say, yes, they're my friend. That's the fantasy. And then there's the one that's calendar friends. are, And those you do socialize with, and you do know a little bit more about them, but maybe not, again, to the depth because of your work situation or maybe even, you know, in your faith community, you go out together. It's usually in a group or maybe sometimes alone, but it's more of a friendship that is social, just plain social. And so I call it a calendar because maybe you get together once a month or, you know, these are the people that you follow through with when they say, let's do lunch. And you like them enough to say yes. Then there's the ones that are the deeper, the fellowship ones who are really ones where you do have those conversations of depth. You can, you do really know each other. You can talk about the racially charged situations. Usually, though, they're forged by a common goal or a mission, perhaps you've worked together on a campaign, a political campaign, or um, a cause that you're both are tied to, and you will still be very close, but if that cause or that mission disappears, or you're not connected to it anymore, you hold them fondly in your heart, but perhaps you know, the friendship isn't there. So the ones of the heart have all those conditions of the um, fellowship friend, but they're the ones that the long term that you have the trust that you can do the bumps with. Those are the three examples that I give in the book that, that really um, support us to move those mountains of racism. Mm -hmm. And so Perpetua Charles, uh, you and Clara Durrance um, have had an evolution in your friendship. So you're the African-American. Clara is white. So talk to me about how you and Clara came together. So we met um, as freshmen in college at Florida Southern College in Lakeland, Central Florida. And um, we first honed in on like the differences in each other um, and kind of felt like maybe we, you know, weren't really going to be friends for very long. We were in two classes together and in both of those classes we had these semester long projects um, that we found ourselves working together on. And so what forced us together primarily was the schoolwork, but eventually we decided that we wanted to spend more time with each other outside of the projects. Um, and it didn't take long for us to decide that we wanted to uh, ditch our old roommates and be roommates together <laughs> for the rest of our college career. And in that time, we discovered that there was just so much about one another that we um, could see in each other. Uh, our deep faith, uh, our, our interest in books and films and just the things that we enjoyed doing um, in our leisure time. 
Um, and we also really had a deep appreciation for each other's um, family and personal culture. Um, Clara got to know what it's like to eat Haitian food and to participate in different Haitian cultural activities. I got to know more about the way that she and her family spend time together. Um, and that has been really, really enriching. So Clara, uh, from your perspective, same thing? Um, yes. Like Perpetua said, um, we kind of just were forced together and, um, or how we viewed it at first, but we kind of like to look back on it fondly and think, you know, it wasn't an accident. Like it was, I think, a divine plan <laughs> um, because, you know, I like, I mean, I had made friends at college, but none of like the deep rooted friendships, I wouldn't say. And then um, this person just happens in my life. And um, like she said, we just had um, lots of things in common that, um we wouldn't have thought at first, um, maybe by like, you know, first impressions, but um, the longer we um, spent together, we realized that, um, you know, we were made to meet, so I would say. <laughs> um, and yeah, as far as um, introducing me into a new um, culture and um, traditions, way of life, um, she definitely has. And um, like she said, it's been really enriching and um, I love her family, and it's just been really a joy getting to know them and um, see, like, how she grew up and, um, I guess, how they're different from my upbringing and my family. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me, Dr. Deborah Plummer, author of Some of My Friends Are, The Daunting Challenges and Untapped Benefits of Cross-Racial Friendships, and good friends Perpetua Charles and Clara Durrance, you just heard her, were discussing the benefits of cross-racial friendships. Um, uh, despite the closeness that you felt and the commonality, you had a moment of tension and you had to decide whether to go forward. And that was after the death of Michael Brown. He was a young man in um, uh, Missouri who was uh, killed by the police officer, Darren Wilson. Uh, he was unarmed. And this, as many people know, sparked a whole uh, conversation about uh, the killings of unarmed black men and Black Lives Matter was very involved in it. I wanted to take a listen from the 2018 film, The Hate You Give, because it's really encapsulated exactly sort of where uh, the characters probably were, where you were, uh, Perpetua and uh, Clara. Uh, this is from The Hate You Give movie. It's based on a book by the same name by Angie Thomas. And in this moment, tensions between the protagonist, Star Carter, and her friend Haley come to a head because of Haley's repeated racist remarks. You can't even see that you're acting racist, huh? Because I'm not. It's all our and us and Black Lives Matter, girl, until you clutch your purse when you're in the elevator with the black person. You don't need to use the N-word and use a fire hose on black people to be racist, Haley. Now, uh, you two were not experiencing the exchange of racist uh, words, but you had tension about it. Uh, Clara, talk to me about um, your surprise at, uh, at coming to try to deal with the issues that Perpetua was feeling in the wake of Michael Brown's uh, death. Well, I mean, I was looking or viewing the situation as, you know, um, a white woman who really has never had to feel any type of um, prosecution or been treated in a different way. Um, you know, 
I've just never been in that situation. And, and as sad as it is to say, I probably won't ever be in that situation to fully, you know, understand um, how people of color feel in terms of racism and how they've been treated in society um, or, you know, as far as police brutality goes. Um, and just, just little things like microaggressions and stuff that like, I just don't realize, um, because, you know, I'm not, it doesn't affect me personally. Um, but Mm -hmm. you know, Perpetua is kind of like a beacon in, in that as like opening my eyes to really how, um, someone of color could feel and how that they're, they're being treated, you know, in, in the rest of the world. And um, so in that situation, you know, I kind of had blinders on, I guess. Um, and talking it through with her, you know, kind of made me open my eyes and, and try to look at it from a different perspective, from her perspective. And um, Perpetua, that's uh, Clara Durrance. She's friends with Perpetua Charles. The thing to emphasize here, as Dr. Plummer emphasizes in her book, is that you have a friendship. So this was a decision about going forward or not, because this is a a fundamental thing in your life, and you wanted her to get it, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Mm -hmm. So how important, and, and by the way, we should say, obviously, you made the commitment to continue to be friends and to iron it out, and that was very important. Please talk about that. So I was having my own, like, racial identity awakening during and following Michael Brown's death. And when um, Darren Wilson wasn't indicted, I yeah wanted Clara to understand where my frustration and anger was coming from. And um, it was really, it was really challenging. But what was important, I think, was that we we had the really tough conversation. We, you know, kind of hit each other where we knew it would hurt. Um, But we took a step back. I remember um, sending a final text and saying I need to just take some time. And I processed. And I thought to myself, like, I was really thinking about Clara as a white woman, which was probably really the first time that I was doing that because I had always understood her as or understood her for all of the things that made us kind of feel the same. And this was a very important difference that I had to factor into um, my understanding of our friendship as we tried to decide if we were going to move forward. Mm-hmm. And the question I really asked myself was, is this, a, is this white woman worth it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is this white woman worth the effort? of trying to educate or help her understand. And um, And once I I, (laughs) like thought it through, which didn't take very long, um, I was like, yeah, of course it is. Mm -hmm. So we came back together on the phone, apologized profusely, and then just really stated our commitment. We said it out loud. We were like, we commit to like making our friendship stronger and better than it was before we had this conversation and not, um, not ignoring the fact that I am black and that she is white and that these things are just going to become increasingly more relevant for us. And that is what made our friendship stronger. Well, Dr. Plummer, they've just demonstrated with their uh, friendship 
the bottom half, the back half of your of your the title of your book, which is um, the daunting challenges and the untapped benefits of cross racial friendships. But you believe that these kinds of one on one, really deep connections, not the bubbles, not the fellowship, not the calendar, but the heart ones, um, really then can lead to something bigger. Which is why you've taken the time to uh, outline in, in very careful detail why this is important. And that's so true. Mm. And I think that their friendship is an example of, you know, that the challenges part, but the commitment that needs to happen and the intentions that have to be there, because for many people, that is not what we do, because friendships are optional. And so because, you know, they're optional, we can walk away from them. But the benefits, the return on that effort is so large. Now, the question I keep getting is that it's so much work, though, for people of color. It seems to be much more work for people of color than it is for whites. But I do think the benefits are there for people of color as well. They may not be at the stage of the awakening, but a deepening of the racial identity, um, the ability to hold multiple realities, to be able to um, get in touch with the more universal qualities and of being a human being. They are there. And most you know, importantly, I think for both parties, it is heightens a worldview that increases your quality of life and helps, I think, all of us to be better and informed citizens, to have a much better world, to get, live towards that beloved community that Martin Luther King talked about. Uh, but down here on the ground, in terms of just building these relationships, um, the race piece um, usually stops a lot of progression in these relationships because um, there is often not an ability to get over and to understand all the daily things, as Clara mentioned, uh, that she now sort of understands that Perpetua has to to deal with. Um, and it becomes the sticking point. I just wanted to play this clip. This is from Boston Public Radio, which is hosted by uh, Jim and Marjorie here on our station. And it, the conversation was really about whether Massachusetts was one of the most polit- politically prejudiced states in the U.S. and why. And this woman called in to say this, this is what stopped her from having friendships across racial lines. It's really sad because they're, you know, in my social world, because I have an education, now I have economic privilege. The sum of the world that I go in often is very white, very privileged, and it narrows down the friendships that I'm allowing myself to have. And I feel bad about that, but I just can't connect to the thought process that goes behind it because I'm a black Latina. Mm -hmm. So those policies affect my people. They affect me. So this is, Deborah Plummer, what you were dealing with with your, your long-term friend of 50 years, that it's not uh, that you can separate policies over here and then our, our familiar, common uh, friendship of knowing each other for 50 years because the policies affect you Absolutely. in a life-and-death way. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I found out in writing this book, you know, when we had a conversation that my, my dear friend voted for Trump, and I— hadn't known that. I I think I just made an assumption that we shared, you know, the same political ideology around things. I unraveling why she did and understanding the conversations that we had. Because of your friendship, you made that assumption. I think so. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think I made that assumption because of our friendship, because of, you know, the people that we knew in our lives, how we would, the values that we held. I made that assumption. But I think because of 
her family background and the strong business ties and where she placed her faith, you know, faith tradition, and particularly around pro-life and um, choices, she made a decision to put the race, racism or xenophobia or all those things that were so important to me in terms of the quality of my life down on that ladder of importance to vote for someone who I had an opinion about, a strong opinion about uh, how he used himself in the world around race issues. Mm -hmm. And so that was a bit of attention, we might say, in our in our friendship as well, because you get to see how the world treats you differently when you're going through life with a friend of a different race. I was reminded in reading that part of your book, uh, a, a, a section from Kim McLaren's uh, new essay book called Womanish, and she's talking about in a chapter called Becky and Me, the relationship between black and white women, specifically in this case. And this is just a remembrance that she had on the night of the, the first big women's march. She said, the night of the march, I met a lovely middle-aged white woman and her white husband from a white town in white central Massachusetts. I was at a white party, one of three colored folk in the room. She and her neighbor and their daughters had attended the sister march in Boston, and she was still glowing from the experience. How exhilarating it was, how powerful and connected she felt. What fun. Did she want to talk about police brutality against black people, about systemic racism in the justice system, about segregation in schools? I'm not very political, she said. I nodded. That must be nice. Yes. <laughs> that's Kim McLaren's womanish. Um, so, I mean, that's for a lot of people that comes down to it. And yet friendship, as you've made clear in your book, is really uh, something you can, you don't have to have it, um, and you want to experience all the fun things you do with people. You want to experience all the commonalities. So why push forward then? Why, this is why most people just stay in their own racial groups. And by the way, you make the point that people of all races stay in their own racial groups for the most part. Absolutely. Yeah. It's much easier. I say we are all somewhat lazy when it comes to that, and not in the slovenly way, but it takes a lot of effort. And, said, and friendships are optional, so why make that effort with the little discretionary time you have? You know, it's, you know, friendships are something where you want to have an ease with. People tell me in the focus groups, when I want to go quick and deep, I have to be with my own people. You know, I don't want to have to explain things. And so it does take extra effort. But what I also know from the research and from others who are studying this phenomenon, we are becoming more and more racially isolated. We're all racial isolationists to a certain extent, and we live in our racially divided worlds. And because of that, the new form of racism that comes up is about the fact that we don't necessarily, whites will tell you particularly, that they don't necessarily believe that um, people of color are inferior and People of color will say that they don't necessarily feel that whites are superior. It's just that we are so radically different that we just have to be in our own worlds. And that's and that's a huge difference. Now, what I'm interested in, and by the way, I should point out that you were a former nun. Yeah. So I think to myself, because the book, as as tough as it gets with pointing out some of the, the sad parts about this, is very optimistic about the possibilities uh, and the rewards of of pushing through in this. And I so I, I, I'm guessing you had a higher power and a, a little faith undergirding your optimism. That's my that's my assumption. You're but, right. <laughs> You're right. Uh, but you um, 
say there are ways, um, small ways that we can sort of move toward that. Nobody jumps from, I just know you at the water cooler to heart friends. But there are other ways that we can make decisions about how we want to begin a process of having a little deeper experience. Would you talk about that? Absolutely. Mm. And the first most important is that racial identity assessment. I think we heard Perpetua say it. she had to go deeper into her own racial identity and what that meant. And all of us have to do that because that is not something we learn a lot in. We don't talk about it actually in our schools. You know, we go about intellectual development, moral development, social development, all of those things, but we really don't talk about racial identity development. And I think that's something that we need to talk more about and help people educate about um, themselves about, not just people of color, but whites as well. Mm -hmm. What does white identity mean? What does black identity mean? So coming to understand our own racial identity is the first step. I think another one is our multiracial living patterns, you know, where we shop, what organizations we belong to, um, where we get our services from, you know, where we live. You know, we live in still racially segregated you know, um, areas. So how do we move about in our day makes a big difference. If we are racially encapsulated, we're never going to have the opportunity. Work situations do afford us, you know, the opportunity to cross racial lines. However, most people don't do that. You know, the nine to five stays really possibly integrated, but not so much after that. So that's one you know place. And then we have to have more meaningful, enlightened conversations, authentic, different conversations with about racism and about privilege, social privilege, and an understanding of racial dynamics, particularly in the United States. And we don't have that. We keep having the same conversations mm-hmm. with the same people. You know, this sounds like 1960. Yeah, you know, it's the other repeat conversations, particularly now. So we have to have new language, new understanding, different conversations about race. And I would just point out that we're just touching uh, briefly on so much that you have in the book, including generational differences and and uh, other interesting things. But um, as we close here, uh, Clara and uh, Perpetua, I want to uh, ask the both of you how you see your friendships going into the future. So, Claire, I'll start with you. How do you see your friendship uh, going into the future with Perpetua? Um, I think I just see it as, you know, continuing to grow. And, you know, um, we're both growing as people and as adults, and we have our own careers and our own personal lives. But, I mean, we both make it um, a goal to stay in each other's lives and be that support for each other. And I don't ever see that going away. Um, just because, you know, she's just a special person in my life and I can't imagine not ever being her friend. If we can get through what we've gone through in the past together, um, things through college and then also, um, that brief stint of, um, the rough patch. I mean, I don't think that there's anything that could really hinder our friendship. (laughs) So I just think that, you know, it's just going to continue to grow. And Perpetua? I feel the same way. I look forward to, like, all the weird, complicated things that, like, further adulthood is going to bring into our lives and how we can support each other through it. Um, Already, like, just in the years that have passed since that really difficult time. Um, It's been such a relief to know that I can turn to Clara when I do experience a microaggression, wherever it is, um, 
And I know that, you know, I feel solidarity with her when she's outraged on my behalf. We both know that there's nothing in that immediate moment that she can do. But just knowing that she, like, holds my heart, like, while I'm experiencing frustration about it is great. And I know that that's something that I can always count on her for in the future. Well, I would agree with you. As an African-American woman, I can say I have a small group of heart friends. We are, I I do not use friendship except with them. We have had the ugly conversations, and we came out on the other side just fine, and um, I could call them at 3 o'clock in the morning. And and I have a wider circle of people with with whom I am friendly, and I'm grateful for that, too. But the heart friends, I'm really, it's really quite special to me in, in many, many ways. Last word from you, Deborah Plummer. Well, I I want to say that the book was written because I do have some little hopes and the big hopes. And the little hopes, of course, are that it will stir up these kind of conversations and that people will examine their own friendship patterns and they could possibly deepen the ones that they have that cross racial lines or perhaps look at how they can um, further them and that they'll look to how racism happens in the world. And then my big hope, of course, is that we'll eradicate racism (laughs) and we won't have it anymore. (laughs) And we won't have to have this discussion. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I thank you for this discussion and I really encourage everybody to get your book. It's one of the most accessible and you have all of the documentation and the personal stories that really would carry anybody, even the most uh, uh, people who are a little skeptical about wanting to dive into this conversation, it's wonderfully done. So thank Thank you you. so much uh, for this work. (laughs) And uh, thank you also, Perpetua and Clara, for joining me. Thanks for having having me. Dr. Deborah Plummer is the Vice Chancellor of Diversity at University of Massachusetts Medical School and the author of Some of My Friends Are, The Daunting Challenges and Untapped Benefits of Cross-Racial Friendships. Perpetua Charles is an associate publicist at Beacon Press. She is also close friends with Clara Durrance, a sales assistant at Infinex Investments. And Clara Durrance, of course, is good friends with Perpetua Charles. Coming up, of the many things that can divide Americans, political beliefs, nationality, religion, age, gender identity, and one of the most difficult to navigate is always race. Even after decades of civil rights gains and positive diversity efforts, racial relations in the U.S. remain fraught, and the tension can be seen at every level of our society, from presidential to personal. But in small groups across the country, there is a quiet effort to develop authentic dialogue through cross-racial friendships. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. We're continuing our hour-long special exploring the dynamics of cross-racial friendships, drawing from the research and real-world anecdotes included in Dr. Deborah Plummer's new book, Some of My Friends Are, The Daunting Challenges and Untapped Benefits of Cross-Racial Friendships. In this second part of our program, we're discussing how groups of friends and colleagues are organizing to foster cross-racial relationships 
relationships and conversations in their communities. Joining me in the studio, representatives from two groups featured in Some of My Friends are David House, Executive Director of Arts Emerson and Senior Associate Vice President of the Office of the Arts at Emerson College. David is also an organizer of Eggs and Social Justice, a breakfast and conversation series among friends and acquaintances. Hello, David. Hello. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you. And joining us from Portland, Oregon, Eve Britberg. She is the founder and executive director of the Boston-based creative writing center Grub Street and is also an organizer of Eggs and Social Justice. Hi, Eve. Hello. Delighted to be here. Good to have you. Alice Johnson is calling in. She's the Interim Institute Community Equity Officer at MIT and a part of a diverse group of friends in the MIT and Harvard Human Resources community called The Club. Hello, Alice. Hi, Callie. And finally, also in studio today, Sharon Bridberg, sister of Eve, as it turns out, Director of HR for the Office of the Vice Chancellor at MIT and a member of The Club. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you. Well, let me start out uh, with uh, the two of you in the studio, that's uh, David and Sharon, and ask uh, uh, about how your each of your groups got started. So, David, I'll start with you. Sure. So, um, Eve and I have known each other for several years. We were um, connected through a leadership program, a national program, and when we came back to Boston to assume our various roles at our organizations, we continued conversations that sparked there around difference in who we are as individuals, what it meant to be a leader trying to move change in our organization around diversity, equity, inclusion. And so Eve and I spent several years just getting together over lunch. Sometimes it would be, you know, an hour lunch. Sometimes it would be a three-hour lunch, just sort of hashing out, trying to understand each other's perspectives. And we would get into very deep conversations around what it meant for me to be a black man leading and what it meant for her to be a white woman leading in this world in these issues. And so the conversation became so rich and felt much larger than the two of us that we decided that why don't we get together people over a meal just to have this conversation unstructured without a prompt just to see if we can continue this conversation to get to know each other in a more intimate and meaningful way. This idea of perspective taking was something that was very important for us um, in our individual lives. And so that started to gain momentum. Um, and we continued and continue to this day to have these really rich, really unheard of kind of conversations across difference. And Eve, also a member of Eggs and Social Justice, I understand that one of the motivating factors for expanding the group was really after the election of President Trump. And there were some some of you like-minded people that felt like you wanted to have bigger conversations. Is that right? That's right. One of the things that motivated us was I saw I ran into David after the Women's March, and I had gone down to D.C., and he had gone in Boston. And he said to me, you know, I was among the only black people at the march in Boston. And I said, well, that's really interesting. D.C.'s march was quite representative. It felt like a very diverse crowd. And we started to wonder, why Why was that? Why didn't the black community, um, black women, show up in Boston? And he had started to ask around some friends, and they really didn't want to be there. They didn't want to go. And that was really interesting to us. We thought it would be great to explore that topic further with a larger group of people. And in doing mm-hmm. that, I learned something very interesting about a very close black friend of mine who I've known for over 25 years, she didn't go to the march. And I was stunned by that. And I realized, wow, there's so much that I still don't know about this dear friend and how this march and the fact that it felt like 
a white woman's march primarily, even with the more representative leadership of the National March, was was hitting her, was affecting her. And so um, that was a really fascinating first conversation. Now, in the studio with me, Sharon Bridberg, uh, Eve's sister, but different group. You're in a group called The Club, and you all were just friends. In fact, I think you said you were just a diverse group of friends, and then, you know, you talked about everything. Well, we our friendship dates back to when, well, many years. Alice Johnson is actually the first person I met when I arrived at MIT. She interviewed me for, for the job. And I was in a suite with her and another woman, uh, Ramona, and we just became very good friends and uh, very close colleagues, but it very quickly turned from colleagues to friendship. Uh, Ramona and I were pregnant at the same time, and we were on a maternity leave at the same time, and we just spent a lot of time together, and our families became close. And that just developed, you know, over many, many years. Um, and it was, in fact, um, at a time where I was um, not feeling well and I was uh, sick, and Ramona and Alice were down in Florida at a conference, and they said, come, be with us, just be with us, rest, stay with us in our hotel room. And while we were there, we met uh, two other women. Well, one was uh, Etain, uh, who we'd known through MIT, but who was at Harvard, who introduced us to another woman, Ronnie May, and the five of us bonded very quickly. Um, and we've always um, just done a number of things together, activities and um, traveled. And we spend every um, year, we spend a weekend at the Cape together. And um, we talk about everything under the sun, uh, basically, and have just really been a, a support mechanism, a support system for each other uh, through all of life's ups and downs. That is uh, Sharon Bridberg, um, who is friends with Alice Johnson. And Alice, um, as you know, in Dr. Deborah Plummer's book, she uh, states the statistics about how very few people have friends across racial lines. Um, and your group was was described by all the members as friends, and then, you know, other things came up in conversation. But as you know, in Dr. Plummer's book, she talked about having someone she thought of as a friend, but they had never discussed any racial issues. Um, I understand that is not what's happening in the club for you. Um, absolutely. I think that we, um, again, as Sharon said, we talk about everything. And so it's not as distinct as, well, now let's talk about race. If we're talking about things that are happening in the world, and a lot of things that are happening in the world revolve around race, uh, it's just part of the conversation. So, Alice, you know, the thing is that the reason people don't have relationships, close ones, we're talking about when we say cross-racial, and, and, and Dr. Plummer's book is very clear, cross-racial friendships, which she means something that has depth and, and heart, uh, so that you're really talking, being your authentic self. The reason people don't do that is because they're afraid sometimes to, to touch on what they may perceive to be a volatile issue on the other side, in the other group, uh, as it were. So how is it that your group, the club, has been able to navigate that? I guess, uh, and we've had these conversations ourselves because, in fact, I think we just started from a point of friendship, and so we're getting to know one another. And I think it's who we are as individuals that we are genuine with each other, uh, I think we do feel free to disagree with each other, but I think that there is still a value and a love and a respect for one another so that it doesn't get in the way. So I'm curious about for each of you, do you each outside of your 
groups, as identified in this conversation, have other friends outside. So in other words, David, you're a black man. Mm -hmm. Do you have other white friends other than Eve and the people in (laughs) your eggs and social justice group? Uh, Absolutely. And I this sort of notion of cross-racial relationships stemmed from me back in my early days growing up in Tennessee, where I, as a young black boy, hung out with at the time, you know, Asian kids, Mormon kids, Jewish kids, which was a big thing for someone in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and a lot of white friends. And I had really different experiences from other young black boys who looked like me. And there was something incredibly rewarding and powerful in understanding other stories and understanding how they connected even to my story. And so that sort of trend, uh, which started in Tennessee, continues to this day. So it's not only white friends, but it's friends that re- represent all kinds of cultures and come from and socioeconomic backgrounds. Because in building those relationships, I feel like I am my better self by knowing them. And I always talk a lot about um, this notion that Maya Angelou speaks about, that we as humans are more alike than we are unalike, and to use that to break down the walls. And so in our curiosity, it's trying to understand where those likenesses occur and how we build on that versus focusing on all the things that try to keep us apart. So it's a very rich part of my experience Mm -hmm. and has guided so much of my work and my life's work is trying to find that common humanity across difference. So it's natural for you to be seeking that out then. Absolutely. Um, That's my guest, David House. Um, He's one of a number of guests I have here today at Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. My other guests are Sharon Bridberg and Alice Johnson of MIT and Eve Bridberg of Grub Street, and we're continuing our hour-long special about cross-racial friendships by examining how different groups of friends and colleagues are organizing to nurture these relationships within their communities. Uh, Now, Sharon, do you have other friends outside of the club, other friends of different races? I have a lot of friends Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of friends of different races, Mm -hmm. a lot of friends of different religions, uh, just a very, I would say, multicultural um, set of friends. And that has always been an important um, thing for me. Did the club open you up to that or you were just, this is just how? I think I've always been open to that. I mean, I think it really does stem from my own upbringing. Mm -hmm. My parents were immigrants and they came here and their family wasn't here and they created family and their family was... Uh, an intercultural group of people, mostly other immigrants, and they chose to to raise us in a in a very diverse um, community. Um, it's always been it's something that's been important to me and something that I wanted to create, recreate for myself in my in my adult world. Uh, Alice Johnson, um, do you have other other white friends? You're black, or you other have or uh, people of other races as friends? Yes, absolutely. And as as I think about it, um, hearing David and Sharon's story, I grew up in a predominantly black environment. I grew up in Roxbury, uh, but in fact went to predominantly white institutions from starting at the age of 12, so that my exposure um, began very early. Uh, and so I did learn to navigate that system and to really like develop friendships even as a as a teenager. Uh, I do think that there are times in the work world that we have more exposure to different people and the type of work I do, which is inclusion and diversity and equity, certainly brings me in contact. My own family is pretty diverse as well, so I, I do have uh, friends, uh, family that are uh, different races and ethnicities. And finally, Eve, uh, do you have other friends outside of uh, eggs and social justice? 
Yes, I do as well. But I will say I think it's easier, especially in a place like Boston, to meet friends through work because we live in such a segregated city. And so, you know, as my sister was saying, we grew up in a really integrated town. And I found it harder when moving to Boston in 1995 to make interracial friendships. So it's something I've had to work for. And um, certainly through work, I've met a number of friends. And Debbie and I first became friends through Grub Street. All of you have talked about what uh, Deborah Plummer's uh, book title says, the uh, untapped benefits of cross-racial relationships. Not so much the daunting challenges. Mm. You all feel Mm. like you just, oh, it was all great. Mm. Anybody want to talk about any daunting challenges in working on these relationships? Because you come from very different places, even if you grew up among uh, folks of all kinds. It's really funny because okay, before, this is Sharon sorry, Go ahead. Uh-huh. Before we came here, Alice and myself and and Ramona and Attain and Ronnie May, we all really racked our brains to think about um, what the challenges were, if any, and we in terms of our friendships, and um, we didn't come up with any. We really weren't able to. Um, we we have benefited greatly from these friendships, and we've ha- and we have very um, interesting, lively conversations, and we are all very opinionated uh, women and um, and strong women, and we can disagree at times. But um, but I don't know that we find that cha- particularly challenging. I think to some degree we're, we're comfortable with that and comfortable with not always um, coming from the same place. If anything, it's it's helped. Um, it's hel- it's, we see, I think we view it as helpful in stretching and growing our, uh, in, as, our, as people. So, Alice, how would you respond to somebody who would, uh, would say it's very difficult? Like most people do. Here are the statistics. 83% of African Americans, no friends across racial lines. 64% of Latinos, 54% of Asians and Native Americans. Just saying. You all are all kind of anomalies in some way. Um, not, not that uh, most people wouldn't like it to be better because it's, I think, makes for a, a better communal conversation in general. But... But it's but it is something that still is a little bit different. So, Alice, um, you know, you even work in the equity space. How do you how do you explain the fact that most people still don't um, are unable to get a point get to a point to have these kinds of conversations? So a couple of things. One, I think, as Eve said, that being um, being in Boston, which is uh, pretty segregated, I think is becomes a real challenge to even building those kinds of relationships. Um, I do think you have to be intentional, and and what I mean by that is uh, not necessarily putting up a barrier when you meet someone. Being open, being intentional about developing a relationship with someone, and actually uh, exploring what those differences are and what those similarities are. I mean, I think that's really the the heart of it. Well, Eve, that then uh, underscores the the point of eggs and social justice. Then, because you all are intentional, I mean, it's 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 upfront that you're trying to reach across uh, some of these differences to have a different kind of conversation. That's right, and I would say, you know, to go back to your point about challenges, I think you have to also build up the muscle to be able to handle some pretty uncomfortable and rough moments. Say more about that. You know, going back to this. Um, women's March, I really, I was one of those white women after the election, even though I, I thought myself pretty 
um, educated who was stunned by this election. And my black friends weren't. And they were, several of them, a bit annoyed with me for being so emotional about the election and having a really hard time processing it. Um, I really realized, wow, as, 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 as well as I know these guys, we've really, again, had incredibly different experiences in this country. And I really had this, I had this very sad feeling as if I hadn't really been awake enough, active enough, present enough for how bad things are, Mm. how racist this country remains. And that was a tough thing for me to navigate, admit, work through. So I think, you know, we need to sort of build up the muscle to let that truth in and that pain in. And I think that's really difficult for some people. You know, we're at a we're at a real fraught time of race relations in general in this country and to some extent around the world. But but here it's very feels very raw um, that you can barely say anything. I know some people are listening to this saying, yeah, I can't say anything. And then somebody's going to jump on me about that. Uh, Deborah Plummer's whole point is that she believes that a one on one cross racial friendship really then leads to a larger goal. That's her larger goal of the conversation about race. We've we've heard so much about that communal one. So, David, I wonder, do you think it works this way? Is it is is this the way to go, one-on-one? I absolutely believe. And mm-hmm. I think before we get to one-on-one, we have to start with ourselves. And so this deep understanding mm-hmm. of who we are as individuals allows us to see people who are different from us in a new way. When we're so uncomfortable with who we are, it's hard for us to be vulnerable. It's hard for us to show generosity, and it's hard for us to be curious about other. And when you actually have the privilege of having a one-on-one relationship where you can bring in your vulnerability, you can bring in your curiosity, you can ask those questions that you wouldn't ask to a normal person walking down the street, it invites you into a space that you haven't gone before. And it expands your worldview, not only about that singular person, but about the experience of people who represent that same sort of come from. So I think one-on-one is a great way to start because you, as um, Eve talks about, building up that muscle. Mm -hmm. You're actually able to push yourselves, test yourselves, figure out how far you can go in that conversation and having a friend to say, too far, Mm -hmm. you've gone too far, that's not where we go, here's why. Mm -hmm. So I think building that Mm -hmm. trust with one person allows you a little bit more um, temerity, a little bit more um, uh, swag and your ability to begin to engage in a relationship with someone else because you've had a little testing ground there. But the one-on-one seems to me the best place to start. Um, But even before that, understanding why it's important to you to understand that person. And when you find that person, I know I, for example, don't want to be the only black friend that you have, right? Mm -hmm. But how do you expand beyond me Mm -hmm. um, and really engage with other people? I think that's where we begin to see the power of uh, leveraging the differences at the edges that we sort of rub up against. Uh, Sharon, I see you nodding your head. Yeah, I'm nodding my head because I'm thinking about um, just the length of the relationships that we've had and how many people I've met through my other um, African-American friends through my friendship with Alice and Ramona. Um, And um, Callie hasn't asked uh, us yet why we call ourselves the club, Mm. but, um, but Alice can tell you a little bit about how that came to be. And it really is uh, because it has created a sort of a safe space for us to talk about the things that are going on in the world um, that are are concerning and, and disturbing to, to all of us for different reasons and in different ways. Um, Alice, go ahead then. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Um, actually, the, the club 
um, is a reference in an honor of my aunt, who was uh, also named Alice, Aunt Alice, was a budget officer at the uh, Army base in Boston in the 50s. So think hidden figures, that was my mm-hmm. Aunt Alice. And one of the things that is very traditional in, and it wasn't just she, but in other, uh, at that time, um, black pe- there, were, there were fewer black people in those professional positions. And basically what would happen is if a new person came in, the question wasn't, is she a black person? The question was, is she a club member? Is she one of us? <laughs> okay. And so it was yes, really it. about belonging, and it was about finding belonging in the 50s when it was diff- more difficult, I think, than perhaps it is today. Uh, so I just carry that, and we started to call ourselves having club meetings at the end of the week or or to have dinner or to, to, to try to pull together. And I think what's nice about it is it's, it's still that safe space. It is still that belonging, which I think is uh, really important. All right, Eve Bridberg, you get the last word. I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say I really encourage people to read this book and to be intentional in their friendships because I think Debbie is really onto something here and that we all have responsibility to move this country forward and we really can do it together one friendship at a time as debbie would say well thank you all very much for joining me thank you thank you thank you you for having us david house is the executive director of arts emerson and senior associate vice president in the office of arts at emerson college he is one of the hosts of eggs and social justice eve bridberg is the founder and executive director of grub street she is also an organizer for eggs and social justice Alice Johnson is the Interim Institute Community Equity Officer at MIT. She is also close friends with Sharon Bridberg, Director of HR at the Office of the Vice Chancellor at MIT. Together, they are two-fifths of a diverse cohort of HR workers at MIT and Harvard called The Club. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook dot com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugars. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Mm-hmm.